Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? This Thursday is Thanksgiving. Did you know that? If you didn't, there's your, there's your sign. Um, but I wonder, do you know, do you know the context of when Thanksgiving became a holiday that we celebrate? Some of you right away, you're like, oh, of course, Josh, I know it's the pilgrims, right? I mean, clearly that's, that's when Thanksgiving started and all that good stuff. And, and yeah, that's, that's part of the story for sure. But I'm thinking more specifically like, uh, when did we start celebrating it as a nation? Like, how did it become a holiday in the United States? That everybody gets a couple days off of work, most of us anyway. And, uh, well, to know that, you have to go all the way back 160 years ago to the fall of 1863. That fall, President Abraham Lincoln issued two landmark statements. Uh, the first of which you know and you've heard of, the Gettysburg Address. In the Gettysburg Address, um, he commemorated the battlefield of, of Gettysburg. But the other statement that came a few weeks prior to that in October um, was actually probably a little less known and maybe even a bit surprising. On October 3rd of 1863, President Lincoln instituted the first official annual Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. Here's what he wrote. He writes, uh, it has seemed to me fit and proper that the gracious gifts of the Most High God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. Thus Lincoln set apart the last Thursday of November, later, a uh, hundred years or so later, it got uh, codified in to be the fourth Thursday of November every year, but he issued that uh, during the Civil War. And here's what he said, that last Thursday is to be a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father. Isn't that, isn't that exciting and neat? Um, he goes on and uh, uh, implores people to pray to God for help and to praise him. Apparently in the midst of, this was in the midst of the Civil War, and in the midst of the worst war our nation's ever seen, Lincoln thought it was just a ripe time for gratitude. Uh, th this picture is a picture of a public notice of many days of Thanksgiving. This isn't the one for making it a holiday, but of many that were issued by President Lincoln and others in that day, calling people to praise the Lord and, and to, to thank him and to turn to him. Now, because we, we might be tempted to think that, that Lincoln's statement, you know, to, hey, let's just have a day of gratitude in the middle of just an incredibly difficult war. That it might be a little bit obtuse or a little, uh, little tone deaf, 
if not offensive to some people, right? I mean, had he just forgotten that there was a war going on, that life was really hard? Well, uh, no, in fact, he candidly in his proclamation addressed the horrors of the Civil War. He said, it was a war of unequaled magnitude and severity that had transformed tens of thousands of Americans into widows, orphans, mourners, sufferers, and the lamentable civil strife, he called it. But at the same time, he coupled that hardship with hope. Uh, recognizing the hand of God guiding him through some of the most difficult days of his life and of our nation's life. And he went on to commend us and our thankfulness to God to pray also for God to heal the wounds of people in our nation at that time. And hoping that one day God would restore his favor and bring peace. All this conflict, Lincoln goes, let's be grateful all of this hardship, and he says, yet there's still hope with God. He wasn't confused. He was just seeing life through the lens of the Bible. And that surprising context in which he instituted that holiday, it's kind of a good reminder for us today, isn't it? Uh, All of those things would be good for us to do this Thanksgiving and pray for our nation and for the world and for wars to cease and God to calm things. And, and God tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we're to give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Well, because when we, I think it's because when we turn our hearts to gratitude, it, it turns our eyes away from ourselves and away from our troubles and our afflictions, just like we were singing earlier, you know, lead on, good shepherd. Uh, turn my, basically it's saying, you know, turning our eyes from our troubles and make them a promised land. Turn our eyes to the promised land, to what God is doing. And thankfulness, even in difficult times, reminds us that while life is hard, God is good. While life is hard, God is good. He's still good. Uh, We're in a series through the New Testament book of Acts. And uh, if you're new, if you don't know the Bible real well, uh, you've maybe heard of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels tell the story of Jesus, kind of those 30 years surrounding his life and ministry. And then the book of Acts tells us kind of the next 30 years of what happened after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in it, we read about uh, so many different people, but one in particular who kind of takes center stage partway through, his name is Saul. And Saul is a religious terrorist he is, who uh, Jesus radically changed. And um, after putting his faith in Jesus, Saul's life is, is changed in big ways. He begins going around Syria and Turkey and Greece, telling other people about Jesus and imploring them to put their faith in him and be changed themselves. And along the way, he starts a number of churches. And uh, occasionally, He'll, after he leaves that city where he started a church, he'll write a letter back to that church and uh, give him some instruction or some encouragement or whatever uh, the need might be. And a, a number of those letters we have preserved for us in the New Testament, in the Bible. Well, each time as we're working our way through the book of Acts, when Paul leaves a place that he ends up uh, writing a letter back to, we're taking uh, just a, a week or two to go and look at what was it that he wrote to them later? So last week we looked at 1 Corinthians because a couple weeks ago Paul had just left Corinth and today we're gonna look at the second letter Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And uh, 
Second Corinthians is, is really a, a powerful, powerful book in the New Testament, a letter. It's one of Paul's most personal, one of his most vulnerable. And as we're gonna see, as he writes it, he's writing from a place of incredible hardship, of uh, a lot of things happening to where you read some of the things that he tells us to do in terms of following Jesus and you wanna go, but Paul, don't you know life is really hard? How do we do that? And Paul's like, yeah, my life is really hard too. And that's really the only hope we have. Well, uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes ultimately to defend his ministry. Let me give you a little context. This is the second letter we have that Paul wrote to the church he started in Corinth. And we can gather from the text that he actually wrote four letters to that church. Uh, but God only preserved two of them for us in the Bible. Paul lived in Corinth for about 18 months. He started a church there and he eventually left. And when he did, uh, things in the church went haywire. They just kind of went crazy. Corinth was a city full of decadence and, and just craziness. Uh, even a case of incest and lawsuits, false teaching, disorder, and disunity. And 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to them to correct them and bring correction to those things. We looked at it last week. And uh, he had written an earlier letter, but the earliest one we have preserved is the one we call 1 Corinthians because it's the first one we've got. But let me show you Corinth on a map, kind of where it is. This is modern-day Turkey. There's Italy and, uh, and Greece. And if we, if we zoom in a little bit, Paul writes 1 Corinthians, that first letter from the city of Ephesus over here. And, and Paul is in Ephesus, and... He had left Corinth a couple years earlier and he has to be wondering to himself after he writes that letter, I wonder, are they responding? Are they listening? What's going on there? And so he sends a young guy named Titus to visit him. Uh, meanwhile, in Ephesus, some, some riots break out and uh, as the gospel spreads and Paul ends up leaving Ephesus. And he heads north to that city of Troas and he ends up heading over to Macedonia to the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and uh, likely Berea. And he's distraught. He faces all kinds of hardship there as we're gonna see and we're gonna see how it affected him shortly. But 2 Corinthians tells us that Titus ends up coming back to Paul. Paul, by the way, I called him Saul earlier. Paul is just his Greek name. It's the same name. It's just one's Hebrew, one's Greek. And uh, he ends up over here and uh, Titus returns to him. And Titus returns with a good report about the church in Corinth. And basically what he tells him is, hey, Paul, there's good news. Things are turning around in Corinth. Things are going well there now. But still there were a few who were creating problems for the apostle Paul. They were arguing against his message, the things that he had done. Uh, they were slandering him. They were saying, look at the way that guy suffers. There's no way he's really an apostle. I mean, he's, there's just, yeah, he's, he's not the, the real deal. Well, uh, Paul writes then this book to address those things. And in doing so, he talks about the comfort God gave him through all the trials he had been in and the encouragement that God gave him for the future. And he uses this letter to defend himself against his detractors, but also he focuses around a big theme that I think is helpful for all of us. Let's get into it and you'll see it come up right away. 
he starts with a greeting when he writes. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And he write, here's who he's writing to. To the church of God that's at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then right away in verse three, he kind of gets into this focus that's gonna show up over and over through the letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, as you read that, you know, he's able, uh, he comforts us in all our afflictions so that, what would you put in the so that if you could? He comforts us in our affliction uh, so that he'd make all our suffering go away. That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? How about he comforts us in our affliction uh, so that we'd just live happily ever after? Or uh, he comforts us so that he can come in uh, like a helicopter dad and fix everything for us. Those would be good so that's, wouldn't it? But that's not what he writes, is it? He says, so that we can comfort others in the same ways that we've been comforted. And you know, uh, that's kind of God's MO throughout the Bible. Back in Genesis uh, chapter 12, he blesses Abraham so that he'd be a blessing. Uh, later in this book, uh, we read in chapter nine, he gives to us so that we too can give of our resources. Uh, John tells us that he loves us so that we too would love. And here we read, he comforts us so that we can comfort. Now, Paul was writing to defend his ministry, but the focus throughout was God's comfort in trials. And now notice one thing too as we get going, uh, which afflictions does God comfort? Don't spiritualize it too much. All are affliction. You know, I went to Bible college, I studied Greek. Do you know what all means in Greek, that word? It means all. Same thing as the English word. All of our affliction. So sure, some of those are gonna be spiritual afflictions, but there's also, what about your health? What about your strained relationships? What about your financial need? How about uh, maybe the job you lost? What about your mental health and your anxiety? All means all, and that God gives comfort to us in all of our afflictions. And the other reason I know that he means all afflictions is because then Paul says, it's so that we can be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort that we ourselves have received from God. That's really the theme of 2 Corinthians, that Paul's talking about the time in life's hardest circumstances. Some of you, you came in this morning and you're in the midst of, of just some really, really hard, hard circumstances. Maybe uh, along the lines of some of the things I mentioned, maybe something completely different. And, and Paul faced some really hard and devastating circumstances in his life and in his ministry. I mean, you might think of a guy like Paul you know, a spiritual giant in the Bible. Well, surely his life was all just, you know, candy and roses, right? I mean, it was just good. There's no way anything bad would happen to him. But the exact opposite is true. That's one of the most godly men to ever follow Jesus, I believe. I mean, he suffered as much or more than almost anyone other than Jesus. 
I mean, why would a bad thing like that happen to Paul? Well, Paul's life proves that life is hard. It just does. Life is hard. And now I'm guessing each of us, if we had took the mic, passed it around, we could sit here for hours, if not days, if not a couple weeks, and just recount all of the different hardships in our life. All the things that have been painful, all the things we've been through, all the things that we've done that were stupid, that caused pain, all the things other people have done to us. We've got a big list, don't we? Because life is hard. And by the way, uh, hard circumstances, all of us in this room, we're probably in one of three places. The first one is either uh, you've just come out of a really hard circumstance and by God's grace, he brought you through. The second is that you're in the midst of a really hard circumstance. And the third category is that you're probably heading into a hard circumstance at some point in the future because that's just the way life works in our broken world. And so this is helpful for all of us to see that God comforts us. So let's look at Paul's examples because I think you're, you're probably gonna relate to some of them. And you're gonna say, yeah, that's, that's me. I struggle that way too sometimes, or I have, or I'm in the middle of it. So let's just work our way, do a flyby here of Corinthians and look at um, Paul's life and how he talks about it being hard. He says in verse eight in chapter one, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So that's over when he was in Ephesus, right? We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Do you hear what he's saying? And do you think about who it is that's saying it? If there were a list of like super Christians in terms of faith, I would put Paul probably in that list. And yet he's saying, I was so afflicted. I was so down. I got to the point that I despaired even of life. I thought if, if I just end it. I mean, that would be better. He just didn't want to keep living even. Some of you, you've been in that spot. Maybe you're in it today. You need to know you're not alone in that. And you also need to know that there's comfort for you and hope for you. And that's not the way out. There's people who love you, care about you. We'd love to talk to you, get to know you, help you you got to let somebody know. But Paul was in that spot. Indeed, he said, we felt like we had received a sentence of death. We, we thought we were going to die too. It was awful. But one thing you're going to see about Paul is that every time he talks about his affliction, he gives us a little bit of a remedy for how to make it through. He turns his eyes away from himself and onto Christ. Indeed, he said, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us, he could look backwards and see God's leading, but that was to make us rely on our, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's like I was despairing of life. Basically, I was dead, but God raises the dead. And he still does that today. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter four, if we skim ahead a little ways. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. He's talking about himself, that in, in our mortal bodies, we have uh, the treasure of God and of his spirit. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yeah, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, for sure, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that as the life of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He, 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 he doesn't ignore his sufferings. He faces them head on, but he also faces the reality that Jesus is greater and brings help to those circumstances. How about chapter six? As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Chapter six, verse four, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Surely you can relate to some of those, right? And then he goes on uh, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We're treated as imposters, yet are true. As, uh, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying. And behold, we live as punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He conflicts like, Here's where I'm at, but here's the truth. Here's how I feel. Here's what people are doing to me, but here's what I know to be true about God. Yes, this is true, but his mercy is more. Do you see? That's a great strategy for us when we face things when life doesn't make sense and things are so, so hard to hold on all the more tightly to what we know to be true. To hold on to what you know to be true. Uh, Paul says in chapter seven then, for when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. You know, conflict outside all around and fear in our hearts. Uh, he's talking about anxiety there, isn't he? Then in chapter 11, are, are they servants of Christ, the ones who are criticizing him, saying he couldn't really be an apostle if he suffered? Because I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, and he starts listing them off. Uh, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now I should stop there. He doesn't mean it like we mean it in our culture. He means it like he was hit with rocks, right? Like they were throwing rocks at him. There, three times he says, I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This sounds like just a, 
Good evangelistic tactic to get people to follow Jesus, doesn't it? Paul just lists in all the dangers he faced. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak, he says, and I'm not weak. Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? And then he also had some physical stuff likely going on. You get to chapter 12, God had revealed some incredible things to him, but he says, so to keep me from being conceited though because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God gave him, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that is. We don't know if that's a health issue. We don't know if uh, maybe it's a mental thing, some anxiety. We don't know if it's a person. We have no idea. But Paul says it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. It just it kept turning me uh, to question God's goodness in my life, to question his purpose, I think, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But here's what he said. Jesus said, my grace, all is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll just boast all the more gladly then about my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, that's really when I'm strong. You know, all of us, we'd look at Paul's life and go, there's some things that I relate to, there's some things that I totally don't. But one thing we can all relate to is the fact that life is hard. And we face really hard circumstances. And often when we face those circumstances, if you're like me anyway, sometimes you go, why? So why'd that happen? Why did I do that? Why did they do that? Why did that happen? And probably more often than we care to admit, we might even blame God. God, why'd you let that happen? Why'd you make that happen? Why'd you make me like this? Why'd you put me in this situation? But gently, can I just remind you and myself that it's not God's fault. It's our fault. It's our fault. If we blame anyone, it should be ourselves and it should be Satan. See, because when God created everything in Genesis, everything was perfect. That was God's design. It was whole and good. That's why in our brokenness and in hard times, we go, wait, this doesn't, this isn't right. This isn't, I don't think how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Because God ultimately created it perfect. But he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, which by the way, isn't like the small vegetable garden. It's more like a national park. And he says, you can have dominion over all of it. Every tree in this garden is yours to eat from. Take it, have it, it's yours, enjoy it. But don't eat from the one tree in the middle. Because if you eat from that, you'll surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? 
same thing any one of us would have done. They eat from the tree. And then uh, everything that was perfect now is shattered and for the first time they feel shame, which I can't imagine what that's like to never feel shame and hurt and brokenness. For the first time they feel distance between them and God. For the first time they feel distance between one another. And everything gets messed up from that point going forward. But thankfully, right away, in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God promises a fix. He's like, I'm gonna send someone, I'm gonna crush the head of the enemy. He's gonna bruise his heel, but I'm gonna crush him and I'm gonna fix everything you guys messed up. I'm gonna provide the fix. And the rest of the Bible then traces how Jesus comes and fixes it. See, but ultimately it's our fault, not God's. Uh, God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. But sin and brokenness is, is our fault. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all of us because we've all sinned. Now, the hard circumstances you face, sometimes it is like a direct result of your own sin, right? Like, you, you, maybe you complain to God, God, why'd you let this happen? He's like, well, why'd you touch the hot stove? <laughs> like, I told you not to touch it because you'd get hurt. Sometimes it's because of the way someone else has sinned against us. Sometimes it's just because the whole world is broken. But ultimately, it goes back to being our fault and our sin. Yet in the middle of all that, God gives comfort, even in the hardest circumstances. And that's what we see from Paul in this second letter he writes to the church in Corinth, that God gives comfort. Paul faced really, really hard things, and God comforted him. I skipped some of the passages in there where, God talk, where Paul talked about God's comfort so we can go back to him. But I want you to notice this thing. The, the reason, we mentioned it already, the reason God comforts us is so that we can comfort one another. So that we can love and help each other. Let's go all the way back to chapter one again. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. There, there's even purpose in your suffering later because God would use it to be able to help you help someone else. Now, if you go to help somebody who's in their suffering, that's the wrong line to start with. <laughs> and some of you, you're in the midst of it right now and you're hearing that and you're going, oh, come on, Josh, really? I, I share that because all of us have been through suffering and God will use that to help others. We can look back at how he's helped others and how he's helped us and trust him that he'll help us today and going forward. He will, he doesn't waste those things. Um, and he uses our suffering to help others in the same ways. It, it reminds me of the story of a young single mom. She was just having one of the worst days of her life. She lost her job, the washing machine broke down the telephone just kept ringing, text messages lighting up her phone, her head ached, the mail carrier brought a bill that she had no money to pay. She was pretty much at the breaking point and she picked up her one-year-old 
put him in the high chair and then just leaned her head against the tray and began to weep. Without a word, her little boy took the pacifier out of his mouth, stuck it in hers. He was comforting her the way that he himself had been comforted. That's what he knew. And so for you too, however God has comforted you himself or through his people, you can comfort others in the same way. See, Paul said uh, in chapter seven, we read this first verse, for when I came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. There was fighting and conflicts without. There was fear and anxiety within. And then uh, we, we keep reading, though. I didn't read the rest of this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Remember I told you he had sent Titus to Corinth to, to find out what was happening and Titus brought back good news. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. It's like this chain reaction. They comforted him and now he's comforting me. And God comforts us to comfort one another. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. Sometimes the best way to help someone in their suffering is just to let them know that they're seen and they're known. Paul, with Titus coming, learned that everybody in Corinth still loved him. They were thinking of him. They cared about him. And it was a blessing and a comfort to him. And know that God sees and knows as well. And the other thing for us to recognize in our suffering uh, is that his grace really is enough. It really is. He, he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And friends, his grace is sufficient for you and for me too. His, and again, look back at the ways his grace has been shown to you in the past, trusting he hasn't changed. He'll show that same grace into the future. In life's hardest circumstances, God gives comfort and there is hope. There is hope. And friends, that hope comes through faith. Through faith in Christ. Let's, let's look at uh, chapter five, what Paul writes here. There's so much we could teach from and learn from 2 Corinthians. We're just flying by. But in chapter one, or chapter five, verse one, excuse me, uh, Paul, in talking about some of his suffering, uh, he, actually, if, if I start a little earlier, he says in the end of chapter four, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. <laughs> Remember how Paul was afflicted? He calls it light and momentary. Why? Well, because he's viewing it in light of eternity and of God's goodness. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the, un the things that are seen are transient, but the things unseen are eternal. And then in uh, chapter five, verse one, he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a home not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And all of us in this room, we know the older you get, the more you groan 
in this earthly tent, don't you? But it's not just physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's all of those things. We long for God to fix it. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who's prepared us for this, this very thing is God who's given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We keep our eyes on what we know to be true, not necessarily just our circumstances. And so we can trust him that he'll comfort us and we have hope for the future. And it comes through faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And friends, just as we wrap up, I want to commend to you, your hope is Christ. Not just in Christ. It is Jesus. He's your hope. You know, um, we mentioned earlier that in, in hard circumstances, we kind of get put down on our backs and everything we notice, our brokenness and the brokenness of everything around us. And the reason we notice it uh, is because we remember that God's design, we just have it hardwired into us that God's design is good and is perfect. And so when things are hard, when things are broken, we're longing for them to be the way they're supposed to be. And it's not God's fault that things have gone awry, it's ours. We've stepped out of his design in our sin. And it's led to all of this brokenness. And then every one of us in our brokenness, do you know what we do? We look for ways to fix it. So we try this thing, we try that thing, we get uh, into that addiction, we find ourselves in that circumstance. And instead of fixing it, while it might just for a little bit, feel like it's fixing it, it actually leads us even further away from God's design. But the good news, and the reason I said your hope is Jesus, is because Jesus came, lived the life that you and I were designed to live, and yet paid the penalty for the life that we did live in our sin, so that we could receive his life and we could be made whole and made new. And the way I receive that, we mentioned it's by faith. That's where my hope is. I, I repent, I, which is just a churchy word that means turn. And I believe upon the Lord Jesus. I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, or that God raised him from the dead, confess with my mouth that he's Lord, and I will be saved. You will be saved. It's just an act of faith. And it's through the gospel and Jesus is our hope. He's the one who brings that good news. And what he does is he restores us so that we can recover God's design and we can pursue it with our lives and have hope. Well, that's basically what Paul says in the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter five. Let's look at it now as we wrap up. From now on, therefore, he says, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. No longer. We used to think he was just a man, but not anymore. We recognize that he's God, and therefore if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was fixing all of that brokenness and restoring us back to God's design. Not counting uh, their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Let me get you caught up here. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Repent, believe the gospel, and return to him and pursue and recover. You know, when you, you hear me maybe make that call or Pastor Dave or whoever, ultimately, that's not me. That's God through his word calling you to turn to him. And then look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Think about gifts. Maybe you're going shopping on Friday buying Christmas gifts. Imagine your gift to Jesus is to wrap up all of your filth, all of your anxiety, all of your sin, all of it. And you give it to him. And he takes it, doesn't throw it back, he embraces it, he dies in your place, pays the penalty for whatever it is you racked up on the credit card bill for that gift. And then in return, he gives you his life and all of his goodness and all of his righteousness and all of his purity. And all of your junk and my junk is imputed to him and all of his goodness and life is imputed to us. And it's the great exchange. And that's what happens on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become righteous and have life. Working together with him, then we appeal to you to receive the grace of God, not to receive it in vain. And he quotes from Isaiah, he says, in a favorable time I listened, in a day of salvation I've helped you. And Paul's like, listen, today is the day, it's that favorable time, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you can turn to him because there's coming a day where it'll be too late. But today's a day when you can. So be reconciled to him, trust him in faith. Repent and believe. Pursue him and follow. And if, if you've never made that decision, you can make it really simply. You just acknowledge that, um, Jesus, yeah, I have. I've stepped out of your design. I've, I've sinned in small ways and big ways. And in my brokenness, I've pursued all kinds of ways to fix it that I've proven don't work. And so I turn back to you, I repent. And I put my faith, Jesus, in you. I believe you died in my place on the cross. I believe you give me life. And I desire to pursue and follow you with the rest of my life. 
if you just pray that, say that to him, that's the start of salvation. That's not anything that you do, it's everything that Jesus has done. And that's how we can say in life's hardest circumstances, God gives comfort and there's hope. And that hope is Jesus. Let me pray.